Howdy! Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode three of Undersampled Radio. We're here this week with a new guest, Scott Wessels, who is the VP of Geoscience at PetroEdge Energy. Before we get to Scott, Matt and I are going to tell you about a a couple of things going on in current events, one of which is that our forum, the Software Underground, has a new channel, especially for Underground Undersampled Radio. Tell us about that, Matt. Yeah, you can um, go check out swung.rocks. Doesn't sound like a URL, but it it totally is a URL. Swung, S-W-U-N-G, sort of short for Software Underground. That's the name of the Slack channel. And um, yeah, there's a a channel inside that uh, team in Slack. And you can go there, discuss, meet other people who are interested in geeky geoscience stuff. It's awesome. It is awesome. Thanks for doing that, Matt, and we'll have that online very shortly, so go check it out. Um, so I see in our show notes here that Matt has some notes about SciPy 2016, which I believe is coming up shortly. What's going on? Yeah, SciPy, so, uh, you know, if, if uh, anyone's read the blog, the Agile Geoscience blog, I've, I've blogged about SciPy the last couple of years because I've been down to Austin in July uh, with Evan and Ben. Um and a bunch of friends from Swung and from elsewhere. And uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, obviously it's a SciPy Python scientific computing conference. Um, but for the last couple of years, there's been an earth science, uh, what they call a mini symposium. So basically a half day session where we try and gather earth science um, papers. So, uh, the, the, you know, I'm gonna be chairing that mini symposium, well, it sounds, that sounds grander than it actually is. I'm going to be somewhat organizing that mini symposium again this year. They're calling it Earth and Space Science this year, so I'm not totally sure yet what that uh, means, but I guess it just depends what kind of abstracts come in. So, um, yeah, if anyone's listening and dabbles around in Python and is interested in geoscience and can be around the Austin area in in July, get it in your get it in your calendar. It's July 11th to 17th in Austin, Texas. And I was just looking around for the URL, but I'll dig it out and put it in the show notes. It's going to be connected to scipy.org. I'm sure you can Google it quicker than uh, quicker than I can. In fact, there you go, scipy2016.scipy.org. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, I wanted to mention in my notes about what we've been doing this week, we had in New Orleans the Greater New Orleans Science and Engineering Fair, which was an absolutely fantastic event. It was a bunch of high school students getting together, showing off their uh, science or math or computer projects, and they were awesome. We I, I, there were some of the ideas that these kids had that I was just like, "Damn, that is that is a good idea. That is a good question. I wish that some of my garbage work in high school was as good as that." Uh, so these kids are going on to um, Ivy League schools. They're going to compete in international science competitions. So it was it was really cool to see that. I have a couple of 
photos and stuff documenting experience there on my Twitter. So if you could check me out, you can see some of the cool ideas. One of them, in fact, had to do with digital signal processing, which I thought was pretty awesome. Hmm. Um, so check it out. Um, other news going on. Um, we're talking about starting an FWI algorithm in Julia for the seismic Julia package uh, written by a friend of mine who I'm trying to get on the show, actually. Um, if you want to go check it out, it's on GitHub at uh, seismic.jl. And then, moving back into Matt's realm of expertise, I wanted to ask you a question, Matt. How do you web scrape PDF documents? Well, there's actually a fantastic uh, website for that, which you may have found already. Um, I mean, uh, so it's, there's a web app for like, it's called pdftables.com. That is the best tool I've seen for turning somewhat structured data in a PDF into something you can actually use, real data. Um, is that the kind of PDFs you're aiming at or is this something really gnarly? Nope, not too bad at all. Um, I'm going to do some string parsing and stuff like that, so uh, it should work out pretty well. I'm, uh, I'm trying to gather information on current astronauts about what their experience is like, their professional experience is like, and what their interests are from their public bios. I thought it'd be uh. interesting to represent that information somehow in a two-dimensional plot or something like that and share it with all the astronaut candidates of the new uh, application class to NASA. Very cool. So let's get on with it, huh? We have Scott here waiting on the line. He's almost asleep. I can see him there on the camera. He's almost asleep listening to us talk about PDFs and web scraping. So again, Scott is the VP of Geoscience at PetroEdge Energy over there in Houston. Uh, he has a bunch of really awesome publications in the SEG, SP, uh, EAG. Um, you can you can find all this stuff linked on his uh, LinkedIn page. Um, and I didn't see anything on there. Scott, do you have anything on Twitter or website, a blog or anything? No, not really. Okay. Well, you can find links to the um, to the stuff that you have published there on, on LinkedIn. Um, and they're awesome papers. I recommend you guys check them out. Uh, the way I ran into Scott originally is that we were going to the University of New Orleans at the same time for our master's degrees. Mine was in physics and Scott's was in geology. What did you specialize in for your master's? Uh, so I did my master's studying the depositional history of the Mississippi River Delta during uh, transgression following the last glacial maximum. So I was looking at um, the Incise Valley fill um, over the last about 25,000 years, connecting, connecting all of that to the high stand deposits that you can see on a map today. And what did you find out? Um... <laughs> uh, that, that there was a pretty rapid transgression. Um, there's there's a series of abandoned deltas near the shelf edge and and all the way back up the valley. So, and that um, that there was a period of time where the Mississippi River was phenomenally powerful in a way that um, you probably can't even imagine. Depositing boulders into the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah, yeah. When when you look at the sediment that's in the river now, you've got fine sand. Uh, but yeah, there were there were cobbles and, and gravel coming all the way down from uh, from the hinterlands. So 
cool pretty stuff. impressive. Cool stuff. Um, so you've moved on. You've decided to uh, become an awesome full-time actual person there in the oil business. What are you doing at PetroEdge? Um, so I'm a geologist. Um, my my title sounds awesome, but really I'm I'm a geologist. Um, there's I don't manage people or anything, you know. Lucky you. But uh, <laughs> but so so we're a small private equity company, and and um, you know we look to find undervalued assets, um, prove up the value, either technically or operationally. Usually a little bit of both uh, or a lot of both, and um, then market them at their at their full value. So. Excellent. What kind of uh, technical evaluations are you doing to to improve them on the front end before you do any operations? Well, I mean, first, so so it's like I relate it to um, like flipping houses. You know, you find something that is is structurally sound and has a lot of potential, but maybe hasn't been maintained, or is um, in maybe in the best cases just needs a coat of paint. Um, and and you come in and and you assess what what is not working for the asset and and you uh, improve that you make everything efficient you so on the technical side it may be um, uh, expanding where you can actually drill or that certain formations are productive and, um, just just making a better case for what's actually there so. So a good example is, um, so this is PetroEdge 4 and PetroEdge 3. Um, the assets were, uh, it was an extension of the Eagleford to around the College Station area. And, um, you know, there had been some early completions that weren't successful. And we were able to do the technical evaluation to make the case that if you were to change the completion in this way, you would get a successful well. Um, and that's what happened. What what happened around us at the same time was that there were 100 wells drilled successfully um, in the meantime while we were establishing our position and improving it. So, what What's the meaning of the sort of PetroEdge release numbers, uh, three and four and so on? Oh, so um, that's the iteration of the company. So the first two companies were held in... Um, the assets were in the Marcellus in Appalachia. Okay. The third was in uh, East Texas, South Texas. So, what does a full, what does one of those cycles look like? Is it completely uh, sold essentially at some point, and then it restarts with other? Yeah, exactly. That's that's why I relate it back to uh, flipping houses. You know, huh. you purchase an asset, you make the improvements, and then you put it back on the market. So the cycle is usually about three to five years. So, is it the same corporation, or it's completely dissolved and reincorporated? Well, how does that work? Right, dissolved and reincorporated, um, but it's oh. the same people. So, huh. I've I've never heard of that pattern. Is that a thing in Texas, or maybe it, maybe it's just not a thing in Alberta? It's it's a private equity thing. It's pretty standard. Okay. So, interesting. So, do you have um, engineers over there doing the completions work? I mean, it sounds like you can do um, a lot, wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Well, uh, yes, we've got great engineers. Um, and yeah, I do a lot more diverse things than I ever thought I would, than <laughs> I would have guessed. Um, and it's great. Um, so my, my past job was at, 
at Statoil and you at a big company, there's someone for everything. Um, so like I didn't load my own data. I didn't, um, that's really the biggest one, <laughs> but, um, I didn't deal with any financial stuff. I didn't deal with, um, reservoir characterization as much. And so, and so now like I, I deal with everybody on all counts. Sounds you know, like a ton of fun. So small that everybody overlaps a lot. So. What's your favorite part and why? Um, being at a small company, um, everybody is moving in the same direction. So it's really simple that, that our company objective is to be successful and, and basically to make money. Whereas, um, you know, in a big company, you get really far detached from that. Um, and so everybody has their own personal objectives and they may, they're, they're definitely going to be in conflict at some point and, um, they may not necessarily be what's best for the company, but they may be what's best for a person to get a promotion or to not get fired or to, you know, whatever, whatever a person's motivation is. So capitalism, baby. <laughs> The inefficiencies of bureaucracy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Matt and I agree with you. That's why we're doing our own things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I support you in that. That's really good. So I see that in the past, you, you sort of moved through a phase from doing your geologic work as a master's student through the process of learning and uh, exploiting the analysis of micro-seismic data, passive seismic. Um, can you tell us a little bit, we have, we have a lot of software people on here. Can you tell us a real brief description of what micro seismic is? Um, so micro seismic is, um, it's a passive seismic application to monitor, um, very small, essentially very small earthquakes. So when you've got, uh, so to put it in, in scale of, of macro earthquakes, things that you can feel, those are, you know, magnitude, at, at least magnitude two, three, four, five, you know, um, once you get to five, it, it, that's, that's a serious event. But um, these micro seismic events are on the order of minus one, minus two, minus three. And these are, you know, order of magnitude changes per, per uh, integer, you know, so. Um, so where does what's the source in this experiment? So the my experience in microseismic is in hydraulic fracture mapping, um, and that's kind of a misnomer because you're never really mapping the fracture; you're just mapping the sounds that are associated with the injection of fluid that you assume made a fracture. It's it's kind of goofy, but so why do we do that? Uh, well, the intention is to to understand what part of the reservoir you're stimulating. Um, one of the best applications is to know if you're injecting in zone or um, building fractures out of zone. So that that um, microseismic grew really quickly when the Barnett Shale came up because there was an Ellenberger, which is a karstenographer down below. And so if you frack into that, you're going to get a water well 
and you'll have wasted your investment. So that was that was um, the first major and really beneficial application um, on a large scale of microseismic. And, and I think that's one of the best applications, really. So microseismic uh, measurements seem to be three-dimensional in nature. Can you determine the azimuth and inclination and uh, radial um, extent of the fractures with microseismic? To, to some extent, um, it depends on your acquisition geometry. So you need to you need to be able to acquire a certain uh, minimum uh, minimum part of the wave field. So if you're if you're just on one side of the event, say if you've got a vertical um, downhole array, it can be hard to get enough of the wave field to figure out what actually happened, but um, it, with surface arrays, it, that's a pretty easy thing to do, usually. Uh, so you can you can put the you can put the event back in space and understand what the relative motion is uh, at the at the event. So. Well, can you combine active seismic and passive passive seismic? Is there some way to tie those two pieces of data? Um. Maybe not in a really impressive and fancy way, but I mean, you can if you've got a good um, depth conversion, it's really useful to put your microseismic up against it. Uh, that's probably the best application because then because then you can get a tie between, you know, what part of the formation are you stimulating and and is it going out of zone or staying in zone that that kind of thing. Um, are the um, are the regulators interested in? the results of microseismic like is there an angle there for sort of um i so so i haven't been i haven't been working in microseismic since i i left microseismic in the end of 2011 so so my i haven't kept up to date fully but i know i know for a fact so i grew up in kansas there's there's definitely a significant amount of water injection induced earthquakes up in that area in northern Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. um, and the uh, regulatory agencies are, are becoming a lot more interested in that. Their oversight is coming, whether it's there or not yet, it's 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 coming. So and and passive seismic monitoring is one of the best ways to stay ahead of it because um, because you can see the little things that are happening before something big happens, basically. Hmm, right. How much injection does it take to create an earthquake? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but we're there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for context, you know, this is in Anadarka Basin, um, northern Oklahoma. There's been oil and gas development there for most of a century, and this hasn't been an issue until until development of the Mississippi and Lime, which started uh, within the last five or eight years. Um, and and with it, so so these wells are horizontal and they're highly productive from a fluid volume point of view. And so you have to get rid of the water fraction, which which is 90 plus percent of the fluid volume. So there's a lot of injection going on. And and that was a real step change in the injection volumes. And that that's kind of what led to the increased seismic activity.
Hmm. So um, that that may not agree with public reports that you see out there, and um, and I'm I'm not making that kind of a public statement. So I haven't done the in-depth research to be an authority on this, but that's that's the simple observations I've made. <laughs> what do you think about? So we, we're talking about micro seismic, we're talking about passive seismic, but nowadays when we do dense acquisition, we take full. I'm I'm an active seismic researcher. Uh, we take full azimuthal active seismic reflection data, and we process it such that we can separate those. Uh, azimuthal components into interesting and informative data. Do you find that the passive seismic stuff agrees with the rest, the full suite of data, the full stack of data? Uh, for example, not only azimuthal seismic, but um, uh, well bore measurements and sonic logs and things. Um, I can speak more to the the second two. I don't I don't have the experience to speak about the. Uh, the full azimuthal active seismic acquisition. But um, yeah, I mean, you see, you see fracture plane activation in similar orientations to what you get from borehole breakouts and what you see on, on uh, say like a, uh, a sonic log, a uh, cross dipole sonic log. Good. Um, some places that it's really interesting though is say you go up, and look at micro seismic in um, in the southwestern extension of the Marcellus Shale. Um, the horizontal stresses are within you know fifty to one hundred psi difference. There's there's not a lot of difference in stress, so it's it's nearly isotropic, and so you do see a lot of variability in the orientation of the failure planes um, that you don't see in a lot of other places, or at least. There's a lot more of it than you see in other places, so that's that's a pretty interesting thing that happens. So, is it worth it? Is it worth spending the money on on doing the passive seismic work? I mean, you you've been evaluating deals like this now with the new companies. Is it something you want to see? It so my stock answer for micro seismic is um, you need to really know what you're trying to learn from it before it can have any value. Um, so like my first example of the Barnett and, and, uh, preventing growth into a nearby aquifer, um, that's a very straightforward application and demonstration of the value. Um, things get a lot more complicated when you go beyond that, but beyond just preventing, um, downside when, when you're trying to make a quantification of you know, be able to make the tie between micro seismic and say well productivity. Um, you need a lot of other data also. Um, and this is, this is an area that I don't have a lot of experience with. Um, so I can't speak too much about it, but, but it, it gets, a, it, it gets a lot more complicated when you try to establish an upside using micro seismic preventing downside is pretty straightforward. Does Petroedge want to see it? If they've got it, I'll look at it. Hey, that's all right. <laughs> it sounds. I ask because it sounds like you guys are doing a bunch of shale type of work. Um, yeah, um, and and micro seismic is something that um, I don't know. In, in a lot of cases, is just used to validate a completion design. Um, 
to say that this is what our frac model says we're going to do and then you go take the microseismic and you say okay it did it or it didn't do it um and and that's informative too um see but you'd rather spend the extra money on the fractional wells and in shale plays that have been monitored and those that haven't um it's on the order like three to five percent that have been monitored and um you know, I'm sure there's learning there, but it's not to the point where you need it on every well. You'd rather spend the money on a full suite of logs. A full suite of logs is a lot cheaper. Oh well, you could for a field. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You can, you can, you could take log and core and still come out a little <laughs> bit ahead. So, excellent. And I would do, I would do that over microseismic, um, assuming that uh, those questions are already answered. So just depends on what the most valuable piece of information is. Excellent. So before we wrap up, what is your favorite formation? What have you evaluated that's been a tricky piece of geo to decipher? Probably the most difficult uh, is the Cotton Valley. Um, it's just a series of, of stacked shore face sands and and um where is it we were looking at okay. sands it's in uh east texas north louisiana arklatex basin um and there's a really complicated um post-depositional diagenesis that uh, makes core to log to petrophysical evaluation um really challenging uh, you know, all, all of the usual things that you would use, like porosity to permeability transforms, um, they all fall apart there because the diagenesis is so goofy. Hmm. Um, it's, it's a pretty challenging formation to work with. It would be so awesome to, uh, I wonder what would be a good way to sort of, uh, like document some of those, you know, almost outlier geological scenarios and gather a little bit of data around them as sort of little, not just case studies, but a case study with data that you could tear into to sort of test out some, you know, petrophysical algorithms or some whatever it is, seismic analysis, inversion techniques, that kind of thing. Because, you know, when, uh, like um, I worked the McMurray Formation in Alberta, which is the bitumen, the bitumen sand, and it's bizarre from a kind of, um, the, you know, the acoustics are weird. So the seismic is is weird, and the well ties are strange, and uh, just the the, pe the petrophysical properties are really odd. Um, but there's just, you know, there's public data, but there's nothing really integrated. You know, like a bit of seismic, maybe a bit of like core, a couple core photos, a bit of like fluid data. Um, there's nothing you could really get your teeth into. But yeah, I, I think I think those sort of not not outliers necessarily, but those sort of end members, if you like, those edge cases, really interesting learning data sets. Yeah, we we spent a lot of time studying uh, historical publications on that formation, mm. and uh, we were able to parse out how to solve that problem. But it was not without its challenges. <laughs> uh, you know, because there's there's 
in this case, you know, there were uh, a dozen really good papers from a small group of, of scientists, but in each one, they only put one little piece of information and you needed to have read them all and understood them all and understand how they all get put back together to know which one had the little nugget of gold that you could, you could take out of it and, and apply to the other ones. And, um, that was a really fun experience to put together, but it was, it was hard. It was hard. <laughs> and where, where were you when you did that piece of work? Uh, Petra Edge. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a good thing they had such a smart guy working on it. Scott, thanks for joining us again on Undersampled Radio. I uh, hope to hear from you again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. All right, guys. Nice Tune in next week to hear another episode. Thanks very much. See you later. Bye.